Well, I think uh, my favorite time to watch sports is at the end of the game. I don't usually catch the whole game, especially when it, when it comes to, to, uh, to baseball or basketball, but I really do enjoy turning it on in like the last two minutes of a championship game when it's really close. This is true really for any, any sport. It's like the last couple minutes when it really counts, when it's really close, uh, it's the most fun to watch. And I was thinking about this this week, why do I really kind of tune in and lean in when uh, it's down to the wire and there's not a whole lot of time left and there's a high level of urgency? And I think there's a couple reasons. The first reason is that uh, the players are playing at their best. They, the will of the coach, the coach has been training them all season long, and, and they're finally carrying out his, his will and his training in a way that's like kind of effortless and free and really elegant and beautiful because they're all working together. Uh, something specific has happened, and that is that their, their impulses their under-pressure impulses that they would normally give into, they're not doing that anymore because it's been trained out of them. For instance, the impulse to get hot-headed when you're under pressure. Somehow, if they're at the championship game of the finals of the playoffs and it's two minutes to go, that's been trained out of them. Something else is naturally and freely emerging. Um, another thing that, that has been trained in them is that they have strengths, like this unique strengths that they have to bring to the game that's been capitalized on and honed. They've really honed their strengths, and they're like shining like they've never shined before. The center is getting the offensive rebounds like he's never rebounded before, and the shooting guards is hitting his threes like he's never hit them before, and there's something beautiful and elegant because there's been training happening all season long. There's been practices where someone did get hot-headed under pressure, and the coach blows the whistle, but timeout, you can't do that in the game, okay? You can't become a crybaby when things can go your way. Here's what you do instead. Or blow the whistle, hey, did you see that rebound? That is, that is where you need to live for the rest of the game. This, is, this season, we're really going to hone this strength that you have to bring to the team. That's been happening all season long, training, day in, day out, training, training under the, the, the vision of the coach. And by the end of the game, what you see is a whole team elegantly, beautifully working together. Their impulses have been honed, or their impulses have been uh, mastered. Their strengths have been honed, and they're just working together to bring honor to their city, honor to their college, whatever they're playing for. And, and what, do, what do other potential players say when they see that kind of a game? They go, I want to play for that coach. I want her to train me. I want him to train me. I want to master my impulses too. I want to be that, I want to be that strong of a player. We're in 1 Peter, and 1 Peter, as we've been looking at it, is really helping us uh, develop resilient faith in urban soil, resilient faith in urban soil, where we really begin to flourish in our discipleship of Jesus in a way that is unique to the city, in a way that's beautiful for the city. And as the people of God, as we begin to, to, to train, not only honing uh, our strengths, but also mastering those darker impulses, the discipleship that Jesus has for us begins to emerge, not just for our own individual glory, but we become the people of God who play with all of our hearts and souls for the glory of God. And the people of our city go, as they did in the Roman Empire, they go, who's your coach? I want to play for him. They bring glory to God. They want to know this gracious and good father. 
So we're looking at uh, training today. We're looking at how do we train for the will of God? How do we train so that the will of God comes out naturally and freely in Emmanuel Anglican Church and beyond, okay? And we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at the impulses. How do we master our impulses? Really important question. And then another very important question, equally important is, how do we hone those strengths? God's given each of us strengths to offer to the church and to the city. And so how do those get honed? Let's look at the first part of 1 Peter 4, um, verses 1 through 6. We'll just walk through this here. First part of first part of first you can turn yeah turn there in your bulletins it's printed there and or your Bibles and I'm reading from the ESV um, verses one through six is really going we're going to really see Peter talk about mastering those impulses and then verses seven through eleven is going to be more about honing those strengths verse one since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to no longer live the rest of the time in the flesh, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What's Peter saying in these first two verses? He's calling us to a resoluteness. No player masters their craft, their game, without a resoluteness, a way of thinking where they say, I'm actually willing to suffer rather than continue on being mastered by my passions. That's what verse one is about. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, namely, specifically, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, meaning they're more willing to suffer than they are to continue playing out the same sinful script that was handed down to them. And then verse two, so as to live no longer, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, meaning the rest of the time in your earthly life, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. There's not a both and situation here. You cannot continue to uh, live out of the human passions, the human lusts, the, uh, the, uh, the passions of the flesh which emerge under pressure, that is incompatible with God's will for your life. He is inviting us to train all of, that, all of those dark human passions out of our life so that we can live freely and fully for the will of God. Um, I've been reading a great biography by Ron Chernow. It's about Ulysses S. Grant. Ulysses S. Grant, a wonderful biography Ulysses S. Grant was a Civil War general, Civil War hero, uh, and he also became the 18th president of the United States. It is a fascinating biography, and one of the things that it shows is that um, Ulysses S. Grant won many battles um, on the battlefield and, and politically because he was a great leader. He was humble, but he was also you know, very ambitious uh, and, and, and aggressive in just the right ways. Uh, people really wanted to follow him because he was trustworthy, he was a man of his word, and he was not a superstar. Uh, and so he was a very effective leader who, th- who fought very great battles, okay? But uh, he had a human passion that almost sabotaged everything. And it was an internal battle that he sometimes won and sometimes lost. Remember verse two, will of God or human passions? 
So here's, here's what happened with, with Ulysses S. Grant. He fought alcoholism his whole life. And his first foray into military life when he was in his 20s, um, well, under pressure and away from his wife, he got lonely, so he went off to drink to just, you know, to, to escape from the pain and the pressure. He'd go off to drink. And what happened was he got booted out of the army. His, his commanding officers were like, you know what, no, no longer. And so he wrote a res- letter of resignation and was gone. And it was, it was by the skin of his teeth that he made it back in for what would be the Civil War. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant was, uh, was, had a lifelong battle against one of his human passions, which was an inclination to drink. Part of it was hereditary and some of it was by choice. What do you have a taste for under pressure? What's the instinct that rises up when you're feeling the heat, when you're feeling angry, when it's the last two minutes of the game where where there's a lot of pressure on you, when you're in conflict? Some of us love work as much as Ulysses S. Grant loved alcohol. And we work through our hard emotions. When we start feeling afraid, when we start feeling ashamed, when we start feeling angry, we go to work, we go to productivity because that is where we find security. That's where we actually can, in some cases, disengage from the reality we don't like or create a reality that we do like. And so we blow through every week. God's given us a Sabbath, a 24-hour period as a gift that we receive as a gift every week where we just stop everything. We stop all productivity, paid and unpaid, and we receive God's goodness to us. We, receive, we, we can delight in the gospel. We can delight in Christ. We can go take walks in nature, and we don't have to turn on our email. In fact, we shouldn't turn on our email. And so, But some of us blow through that every single week. We blow off the, the Sabbath. And we love work so much. What is that going to do to us over time? Well, we're going to run ourselves into the ground over time. One person said, you can keep the Sabbath or God can keep it for you. Meaning, meaning if you blow off the Sabbath long enough, you might find yourself flat on your back for a number of months. I just talked with a dear friend. That is his, he said, I was working 70 hours a week and now something blew in my head, the head gasket of my heart. And he's not doing anything right now because he can't eventually the human passions will rise up and consume what God wants to do through our life. And so what we're called to do then is we are called to train. We are called to train for something better. Let's look at what that might mean in verses three and four. Peter says this, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. What's happening here? What is Peter talking about here? Here's what life in Asia Minor looked like for the readers of 1 Peter. It looked like doing business as usual, whether it was family reunions whether it was networking events, whether it was work trade association meetings, whether it was relaxing on the weekend, all of that revolved, all that social life revolved around the local temple, not the Jewish temple, the pagan Roman Empire temple, 
where the local gods were honored as well as the Roman Empire or Roman Emperor was honored. And what would what would happen is people would come together, they would overeat, they would uh, they would drink too much, they would um, use prostitutes, sometimes adults and sometimes children, and then they would engage in pagan practices where they would honor incense to the gods and to Caesar. And that's how things got done. That's how reunions happened. That's how work got done. That's how that's where business deals were signed, okay? And so when people started following Jesus, well, a lot of that's off the table. And so they, they, they stopped abusing food. They stopped abusing alcohol. They stopped abusing other people sexually. Uh, they stopped abusing prayer. And they set things in order. They, they, they began to share their tables and hospitality, but not their beds. And... So what, then what happened was their friends and neighbors was like, what's wrong with you? Why do you hate us? Why are you such a um, stick in the mud? Um, are, you saying that, are you saying that you're better than us? What's the deal? What gives? Uh, I don't know if you ever, like, if you ever swam in a, the neighborhood pool growing up. Remember swimming in the neighborhood pool growing up, and everyone's having a great time. Everyone's swimming around. Everyone's, it's so wonderful. But then there's that person who sees the storm clouds coming. There's that person that everyone doesn't like with that sees the lightning strike in the distance and they're like, all right, out of the pool, out of the pool, we're getting out of the pool. Like, why, we're having such a great time. Why are you out of the pool? Why are you calling us to get out of the pool? Well, there's lightning coming. You don't wanna be in the water when the lightning comes. Verse five, Peter says, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. There's, a, there's an accounting coming for how we live our life. There's an accounting coming for these unchecked human impulses. Everything we do in the body matters. And so the people who are reading this letter, they had just gotten out of the pool. They were dripping wet. They were toweling off and unlearning all of these practices which were slowly ruining them. And Peter's like, keep going. You might experience social pressure. And today you might experience social pressure for taking an actual Sabbath. You might experience uh, name calling. You might experience some exclusion. People might resent you and be mad at you. And Peter's like, nevertheless, you need to stay out of the flood of debauchery and learn a different way of uh, learn a different way of practicing the will of God. To disengage, disengage from the social structures that encourage you to sleep around. Disengage from the social structures that encourage you to drink too much. Some of us have those social structures which encourage our passions, encourage those things that could rise up and compete with the will of God, rather than those social structures that support our training in the goodness of God, and that is what the church is. One of the reasons that we join a church is because we are joining the school of love <laughs> where we are learning to master our passions and learn something better. Learn how to carry out the will of God. What is it for you that is gonna look like toweling off? Is there, a, is there a pool you need to emerge out of? Are there practices that you need to engage in? Let's take Sabbath, for instance. What would it look like to train your passion for overwork? Well, here's what it looks like. It looks like setting aside a chunk of your week. Maybe it starts with just a few hours a week. Or maybe it's a full-on day beginning with sundown, one day, ending sundown the next day. Um, the Jewish people light a candle on sundown to mark Sabbath. 
the Shabbat, the stopping, okay? And you stop. And it's not gonna feel good. It's not gonna feel awesome. It's gonna feel, if you, if you have a human passion to overwork, it's gonna feel like taking medicine. It's gonna feel like exercising. All the emotions that you've been trying to push away through work are gonna rise to the surface and you're going to feel them in the presence of God. Now, what happens in that training week after week? Just like a basketball team practicing week after week, you're gonna find that when you do something over and over again to train, you become free to do something else. You actually gain power. That's what a spiritual practice is for, to gain power, to be a different kind of person. And you're going to be a more well-rested person who is more filled with the goodness of God, more aligned with the purposes of God, more ready to do the will of God. Others of us have other passions that, man, under pressure, they come out. Bitterness, anger, gossip, or maybe sexual uh, immorality. Maybe there's some kind of pornographic addiction that rises up, tempts us to rise up under pressure. What is it for you that needs to be trained? What is it for you that needs to be mastered? God wants you to be a master over your passions. And that's what training in the spiritual practices, training for the grace of God is for. What happens when we begin to train together? We become a place that manifests the goodness of God for people who need it. We become capable of ministering the power of God for those who need it. That's not the only thing that we need to train for. There's also, uh, there's also some strengths that we have that need to be honed, some strengths that need to be honed. Um, so uh, look with me in verse 10. There's a great phrase there I want to point out that it's kind of, think of it as a headline for our life together. It's at the end of verse 10, good stewards of God's varied grace. Good stewards of God's varied grace. Imagine that uh, you've been visited by Santa Claus and he has stuffed your stockings full uh, of um, not just Christmas treats, but also uh, special gifts to use in the church. And you bring that gift with you, and everyone else brings their gift with them, and we get to see together how creative God, get, God is. And we get to see together how good God is and how generous God is and um, how excited he is for us to participate with him in the creative exchange of I bring a gift from God, you bring a gift from God, we celebrate God together. That's what it's like when we exist as the people of God inside the church, in our um, small groups, in our workplaces, that's what it means to be God's team, God's people. We have honed, we have received, and then we have become good stewards of God's grace. Um, let's look at verses seven and eight and consider what that might mean for a life of forgiveness. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Let's read verse eight again. Think about this. Think about the primacy of this for your life. Above all, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You know what? When I read that verse, I hear instruction from a pastor who knows that his people have been trying to love one another for a while. This is a verse uh, written to a family that 
where all of the, the, the honeymoon phase is over. You know what I'm talking about? When you join a church, when you join a small group, when you join a family, what happens? Everyone's really nice and the smile, and oh, but then guess what happens? After a while, people start to get annoying, don't they? People's breath smell. People don't show up on time, okay? People say and do annoying things. This is what it means to be with family. Um, so Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Now that the veneer is gone, <laughs> now that it's getting a little messy and rough and tumble, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. What happens when someone is, 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 is gracious? It means that if you, have, if you have the love of God flowing through you, you're gonna begin to learn how to let annoyances go. And this is a very special gift of the church. This is a strength of the people of God. This is a strength of people who have come to the cross and brought their sins and received forgiveness. You do that enough, what happens? You're the kind of person who, you know what, little annoying things, you've got, you've got actually love in your heart that overflows in response to that. Now that takes time, doesn't it? We can't just try hard to do that. We've gotta train for it. We've gotta train in God's grace so that over time, there's the quality of God's love where we begin to cover a multitude of sins. It starts with little annoying things, but then you know what? It moves to covering and forgiving betrayals and real hurt and the things that bring tears to our life. That moment where we're like, you know what? I might just never show up to that small group again because of how that person hurt me. Actually, we learn, we hone the strength that strength and weakness of learning how to forgive big stuff. It doesn't mean that uh, we still trust that person when they have abused the trust. That's not what it means. That that's not means that, that person does not account for uh, the consequences of their behavior. That's not what it means. It means that we become a different kind of person. We become forgiven much, and we become those who forgive much. We love much because we have been forgiven much. That is a unique strength that's gotta be honed. It's gotta be chopped from the block of wood so that the people, uh, people, our friends and neighbors can see, oh my goodness, who's your coach? Who taught you how to forgive like that? Who taught you how to love like that where, where a multitude of sins is covered? That's one strength to hone. Another strength to hone is humble service. Humble service, verses nine uh, and following, talk about that. Show hospitality, verse nine. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, it's only when you've shown hospitality that you know exactly what Peter's talking about. It can get annoying. The toxicity level in your household can start to grow when you host a lot of people. You can, uh, especially if you're introverted in any way, um, you know that you're tempted to grumble. Nevertheless, show hospitality. Learn to do it in a way where grumbling doesn't naturally and freely emerge. Verse 10, as each has received a gift, as each has received a gift, and each of you has received a gift, use it. Use it to serve. If each of you have received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. For instance, verse 11, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything, whether your speech or your service or your hospitality, all those mundane things 
that sometimes feel like they don't matter. In everything, God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. One of the things that is, um, I guess, a benefit of this job uh, is that I get to see, as a pastor, I get to see the people of God do exactly what Peter is talking about, which is to, as each of you has received a gift, serve one another with the strength that God supplies. And I've seen you serve inside the church. You know, we went to two services last fall, and there's been a lot of extra serving. And I saw this also a few years ago when we launched uh, our, our, our church, where there's just lots of energy being poured out for each other and for the life of the world. People coming early to, um, to set up the coffee, people coming early to practice music, people coming early to set up these chairs, people coming early to put the uh, liturgical art stuff up, people doing a lot of things on a Sunday morning. Um, I've also seen many of you serve outside the church too, in your art and in your job as you've sought to integrate your faith and work. I've seen you love the poor. I've seen you use your work for the common good. I've seen you serve one another in small groups. It's been incredible actually to see Emmanuel Anglican carry out what Peter is talking about in 1 Peter 4, using gifts that God has given you to serve one another. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. It's inspiring. It's humbling. It's beautiful to see it. It's more exciting for me to watch you than it is for me to watch basketball on TV. And you know what I love is the urgency. There is holy urgency in this text. Let's look again at verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Now, this was written 2,000 years ago. Was Peter a little off in his timing? Was he? He wasn't, and here's the reason. When Jesus went to the cross, he was kickstarting God's final redemptive age. And when he rose from the dead, he was inaugurating God's final redemptive stage. The prophets longed to see this stage, as Peter talks about in chapter one. The saints longed to see this stage. They waited thousands and thousands of years for it. They looked for it. They studied for it. They were like, when is it gonna happen? When's God really going to move? When is the final stage of all of this that, that, uh, that's bringing all these things together, exile and exodus and, and salvation, when is it all coming together? When is the final two minutes of the game gonna start? And that's where the final two minutes of the game started. And it will go as long as God sees fit for it to go. But the intensity level's not here. The intensity level's up here. Elijah is on the sidelines. Moses is on the sidelines. The prophets are on the sidelines. Miriam is on the sidelines. But guess who's in the game? You're in the game. Christ has died. Christ has risen. It's already happened. And in the hair's breadth of history, before Christ comes again, you have been put in the game by the coach. And he wants all of us to carry out his will together. He wants us to every, every minute we have to do good as much as we have to do good. Doesn't mean we don't take Sabbath from, uh, from serving. Sometimes we need to do that, as we talked about. But it means that with all of our hearts and with all of our souls, we are training so that the will of the coach, the will of God, his gracious and perfect will flows naturally and freely through us. And we have exciting days ahead. We have, we have more ministry to come this summer and in future uh, in future years. But together, we are 
playing with an intensity and we are training with an intensity and, uh, where we have decided, I am done with living according to my passions. I'm done living as an individual. I'm actually now giving myself body, mind, and soul to the will of God, not just myself, but with the people of God. And you know what happens when we have that kind of, when we have that kind of heartfelt giving of ourselves to training under the will of God? Um, we become a different kind of people, and our friends and neighbors go, who is your God? Who is your coach? As Peter ends uh, his exhortation in this section of the letter, to him, to him be glory. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.